Welcome to Thinking with Dr. Barry Whitney. This podcast series is compiled from Dr. Whitney's university class entitled Justifying Beliefs. The thesis of this class is that we all hold beliefs, and no matter what they are or how deeply we adhere to them, we owe it to ourselves to apply rational testing of our beliefs in order to aim to justify them. This class takes us along that journey, perhaps for the first time or more deeply. For further insights and materials mentioned in this series, please refer to the resource page on Facebook entitled Thinking with Dr. Barry Whitney. There are, besides these, number one, there are simple mathematical laws. Number two, there is this anthropic evidence that we've been talking about. And he gives you, I don't know if he gave you it in the long stuff, but all he gives you here as part of that evidence of intelligent design. You get the big story. There, there are over a hundred mathematical, physical equations like the ratio of matter to antimatter. The ratio of neutron, uh, 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 electrons to protons, uh, the, 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 uh, the strength of gravity, if it were more, if it were less, uh, the, the, uh, the, the uh, acceleration of the Big Bang, of, of, of the cosmos. There are a hundred so-called necessities. I'm going to call them coincidences because that's what they're called when you get it. Um, they look like they're coincidences, these 100-plus facts of science. And without these facts, without the ratios, which are almost impossible to conceive, there would be no anthros. There would be no human life. In order, to, I'll go at it another way. In order for there to be human life, over 100 impossibilities had to occur. And they've all occurred. There, and, and you can't say after five or six of them that they're coincidences. They look like intelligent Structured design. Um, he gives you, I was telling you, there are fundamentals like electromagnetism, strong and weak nuclear forces. These are called the universal constants. These describe everything that happens in everything. It describes atoms and molecules and humans and trees. Electromagnetism, weak and strong nuclear forces, and gravity. Those four. If, if, if any of those individually if gravity had been weaker by a fraction, we're talking one in ten to the trillionth, you know, an impossibility, just a little bit weaker, microscopically weaker, or microscopically statistically stronger, there's no life. Electromagnetism is the same as gravity, strong and weak nuclear forces. These things all happen. They all seem to exist in exactly the right ratio, Strength versus weakness for there to be human life. People are writing books in science about why nothing should exist. We shouldn't be here. These things shouldn't have happened. The odds of any one of them happening are a million to one, a billion to one, an infinity to one against. The odds of all of them happening and interpenetrating, like strong and weak nuclear forces, gravity, electromagnetism, they all interpenetrate. We don't even know how yet. That's the theory of everything, is to explain how these four things interreact. We can't understand it yet, but we know they do. We can't reconcile you know, re relativity physics with quantum physics. There's, that's the problem. But eventually we will. If 
the strong nuclear forces. One of these universal constants had been just a minuscule. He says 5% weaker or 2% stronger. Those are some of the biggest numbers listed. There would be no human life. There'd be nothing but barren rock, pure chaos in the universe. And then he talks about the strong nuclear forces. Those are just the weak. No, this, uh, no then he talks about um, electromagnetism, I think, is the second. Uh, the, the relationship between electromagnetism and strong nuclear forces. If that, if that relationship had been any different, even a slight change, there's no life. The velocity of the Big Bang. Now, if there was a beginning, I'll just give you five or six, just to get the flavor of this, and then we're going to talk philosophically about what this means. The velocity of the Big Bang, if it's any faster or any slower, there's no life. There may be chaos, there may be cosmic rubble, but there would be no anthros. Um, we had an explosion, supposedly, 15 billion years ago. Do you realize that there's an infinity along that line of how fast that explosion could be from... 80,000 million miles an hour to, you know, half a mile an hour. Like it's, it's like, it's infinite. But it just happens to be the right ratio that the thing didn't just go off forever immediately so that the planets couldn't form and the suns first and the, all of this. And it didn't, it didn't stay at such a slow speed that, that, that the thing just collapsed in on itself. The ratio of the Big Bang, the acceleration speed is by luck, by coincidence, just happens to be the right speed for human life to evolve. So we say, what a happy coincidence. When, when the scientists are resisting belief in God, they say, it's just a happy coincidence. But when you get to the 150th happy coincidence, you start wondering whether it's a coincidence or not. Like, you win the 645 three weeks in a row, the 649 three weeks in a row, I, I'm starting to think you, you have an inside you know, connection there rather than a coincidence. Do you know that the odds of, of, of having a perfect bridge hand are 163 billion to one? 163 billion to one. And these things, these coincidences, though, are like 10 to the 100th plus. Like, billions don't even count in these things. These are like trillions upon zillions of odds against any of these things happening. So the velocity of the Big Bang. There's this great book called The Dark Side of the Universe by Treffel, T-R-E-F-I-L. Treffel, 1988. He gives you all the reasons we shouldn't exist. The universe should be dark chaos. But then he goes on to explain a dozen or so of these, these uh, so-called coincidences. You know, the size of the universe. If anybody says there can't possibly be a God because the universe is too big, we're just insignificant little specks. If the universe were any larger, if it were any smaller, you can make a pretty good argument in science now, these anthropic arguments, that there wouldn't be human life. Just think of us being smaller for a second, and the stars, you know, the average distance from a star is billions of miles, billions and billions of miles away. If they were any closer, they'd interfere with us. The gravity, there wouldn't be stable human life or stable laws. If they were too far away, there'd be, this, there'd be another kind of problem. Um, the age of the universe is just right for life. The temperature. The earth has a tilt of 23 degrees, 23.27 degrees. That's a, that's a coincidence. Oh, yeah, maybe some rock hit it and, 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 and knocked it off its course. But if that didn't have that tilt of 23.27 degrees, they probably, according to the scientists who support this, wouldn't be human life. There would be, there would be rocks and moss, maybe, 
but if it wasn't tilted at that strange angle, there wouldn't be human life. Um, the development of heavy oxygen. There is 0.002% of all oxygen is heavy oxygen. Why is it 0.002%? If that figure were not 0.002% oxygen to deuteronium, heavy oxygen, there's no life. And on it goes. These things, uh, the, the, the mass of neutrons, or, or neutrinos, let's say, the smallest particle that we know about, their size is 5 times 10 to the minus 35. That's 10 with 35 zeros after it. That's their size. They're that small, these little neutrinos. And it's been estimated by a, an Australian physicist, Paul Davies, that if, that if the size, the mass of a neutrino it would, is not 5 times 10 to the minus 33 kilograms, just so you know what we're talking about, that uh, if it's just a fraction just a fraction, bigger or smaller, the universe would not have evolved. There wouldn't be anything significant except cosmic chaos. And, and that's, that's like eight or nine. There's hundreds of these things. Like um, if, you, if you study chemistry, it's based on Pauli's principle, Pauli's exclusion principle. That shows you how all the elements have a different level, different spin. Nobody knows why there's a Pauli's exclusion principle. Like why is there such a thing? Yeah, Pauli invented it, but why does it exist? We can't explain that. We can't explain any of these things, like gravity and the nuclear forces, and we can't explain entropy, and we can't... The velocity of light, three-dimensional universes. Without any of these things, I won't go on, but I think you get the thing. You don't have to memorize these. You just need to know the philosophy. Now, here's our choice. Either these things are just good luck. You can, you can, you can criticize this thing effectively in one sentence. And God knows everybody's tried in science. You can simply say, well, if these things didn't happen, if all these hundred plus, maybe 500 of these, we'll say for the record, 500, I can think of way over 100, but there's probably 500 of these so-called coincidences that, that were necessary for human life. The simple criticism is to say, hey, if they didn't happen, we wouldn't be here talking about it. Right? Think about it. We're looking at it. We're saying, well, here we are, so they must have happened. So what's the big deal? If they didn't happen, we wouldn't be here. There'd be something else. It'd be chaos. The point is to answer that question, and that's the only scientific argument against it that I can see. They can't. See, this is scientific data. This is not some theological mumble-jumble. This is scientific fact that these things exist, and without these things, human life doesn't exist. 500 of these things. The only thing you can say against it is that for all we know, they must have happened by coincidence or else we wouldn't be here talking about it. The argument against the scientists here is that they didn't have to happen. The odds against even one of them happening are infinitesimal against. But they did happen. Now tell me that is an intelligent design. That's why this movement is so important. Um, that's all a theologian would ask. Like, I, like, evolution is not a, a finished science. It doesn't explain everything. It's still a theory. It's taken by many, too many scientists as dogmatic. Like, this is the ultimate truth for all time. It explains everything. And God's eradicated. This argument is just as good physics and chemistry and biology, especially the physics. Um, it's just as good as, as, as 
the, the physics that's being taught that doesn't discuss this at all, in my opinion, and, and I'm not alone, I'm, the, I'm not the scientist, but I certainly have read them, and they, they take this stuff seriously. So the implication is, we can't solve it, you and I won't solve it. Even if we had a physicist and a chemist and, and debated it, we wouldn't solve it. No one has solved this thing. I'm simply saying, there's a cumulative argument for God. All I want you to get is, we believe in God, those of us who do, um, basically because of faith and because we've brought, been brought up that way or we've had a conversion or whatever. We understand that. But we also have, those of us who have looked into the evidence to try to justify it, this is at least a likely or a probable or at least a possible piece of evidence that can't be explained, really, otherwise, except as good luck, happy coincidence, even something as fundamental as the origin of life is still a mystery to science. There are theories, but it's still a mystery if you explain it without reference to God. Long and short of the case is none of these teleological design coincidences are really coincidences for a theist. Um, and it just adds fuel to the, uh, to the fire that belief in God is not some silly fanaticism. It's not based on ignorance. And, and it's a logical fallacy to say, I know somebody who believes in God and he's a hillbilly, he's a complete moron. That's not a logical argument. I know some scientists are like that. Uh, that's, that, it, that, I mean, uh, there's people like that everywhere and every place and time. That's not a good argument. Uh, human beings are not the test. This is just pure thinking. This is why these are called theistic arguments, rational evidence for God. Um, I, with the moral argument based on conscience, trying to explain why you feel moral obligation, with the first cause to explain why there's anything at all, and now with all these so-called coincidences looking like they're more like evidence of design rather than coincidence, you can't have that many coincidences. Um, do you know what the scientists have done? Just one last point. I was, I'll finish that sentence. I'm saying I, I, I'm starting to build a cumulative argument for God here. At least I'm showing that it's not just based on my feeling or my whatever I've been born into, that I've taken the trouble to find evidence and I think it exists. It's not incontrovertible. I mean, it's, it, there, there's lots of controversies. There's lots, lots, of, lots of debate. But this is scientific evidence this time. So it's... Uh, it's a very different kind of argument than a philosophical one or a theological one. And it's, um, it's not getting a fair hearing yet. It's, it's just too radical. It's just too threatening to the enterprise known as science because for an enterprise that prides itself into looking at all the evidence, the only evidence it won't look at is intelligent design, or at least it looks at the evidence, but it won't say, gee, I see what you people who believe in God are talking about now. But that doesn't seem that all that much to ask, is to look at that evidence with an open mind and at least present it or think about it. I'm glad to say a lot of physicists are involved in this. In this, in this, it, it's, it's like a movement of protest that there's evidence here that's being ignored and ridiculed. And the fight in, in science. I wish, I wish it were going on here. I wish there were a science class where they debated that stuff for 13 weeks. I'd love to sit in on that one, um, where you have a pro and a con, like just a class called the Anthropic Intelligent Design Argument and just go at it. I can do that in a religion and science class for three or four weeks and look at it as a theologian, but be nice. I think the next time I do that, I have to pull in a scientist if I can find one and 
to just see what, what goes on. I'm, I, I mean, I, he can't argue theologically, and I can't argue scientifically any more than what I've read. So it, it, I don't know wh- whether that'd get us anywhere, but I think the scientists should look at their own evidence, all of it, rather than just some of it, that supports their naturalism, that, that their biases. They're threatened by this, and probably rightly so. Now, the one of the uh, famous ones is that, we, that we won't talk about is the ontological argument. That, that goes back to um, 11, actually around 1050, just when England was falling to the Normans. Um, St. Anselm gave us this ontological argument. And uh, it, I, I won't even start that one because it's one of my favorites. I once took a 26-week graduate philosophy course on this thing. It's, it's amazingly complex, but a good argument for God's existence. This is the one where one of my old profs from the University of Texas, he's the one who discovered this thing, um, a second version of this. After 800 years of saying there's only one version, he found a second one that most people think is uh, mathematically, logically correct. It's really astounding stuff. Um, There are other arguments, though, like the argument from religious experience, the argument of, of feeling the presence of God. It's not faithism. It's like when you look at that, you ask yourself, Questions like, how can you determine whether this religious experience is valid? Is there veridity to it? Is there truth to it? Um, There are an awful lot of things you can say to refute arguments against it. See, when I see a scientist or a philosopher say, if you've had a religious experience of God, you think... This is... I'm thinking of a famous one um, who says this. I'm just quoting him now, so I'll give you his name. A.J. Ayer died about... 20 years ago or so, got him on a tape saying this. He used to play it in class in the old days. and God knows where it is now. But he's saying, if you see a bowl of flowers over there, you can be sure that it exists because we can verify it. But if you tell me God loves you, how can you verify that? How can you verify there's a God? This is what philosophy does to the argument for religious experience. All of these people, hundreds upon millions and billions of people who experience God's presence, A.J. Ayer, who represents philosophy and science these days, basically it's scientism, it's saying it's not true. It's, you do get the pun here, right? Your experience is nonsensical. It's nonsense unless you can verify it with the senses. Now, how can you possibly verify that you, before this class, were in prayer or meditation and you felt the presence of God? How can you verify that empirically with the five senses? You can't. But the scientific challenge is, see, this is what we have. When we look at the argument for religious experience, the feeling, the presence of God, the scientists simply say, well, you can't verify that, so it can't be true. It's nonsense. Well, what do you do with an attitude like that? And and quite frankly, there are five or six of these scientific put-downs of of religious experience, but it it doesn't really hurt the validity of it. It just shows you how limited science is, how naturalistically it's biased against anything except its own empirical proof. People have always believed in God. Either they've all been fanatics and wrong, like the scientists and psychologists will have you believe, or um, maybe they're right. Maybe there is a God. Um, And yes, there are lots of things that science can't verify. But there are lots of tests 
for the validity. Are these people maniacs? Uh, are there witnesses? Is, 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 they, have their lives changed? There are things you can say. It may not be the strongest argument for God's existence because it's so subjective, like it's inner, and there's not much you can do to test it, but there are lots of tests. I've got about 20 when I talk about this, where we, we, we can think about um, whether scientific refutations of this thing, scientific criticisms are valid or not. Um, there's nothing that can really touch it. Science can't say religious experience is valid or not. There's no God gene. The mind is far too complicated to think that you're going to reduce belief in God to a gene. Like, let's put that one to rest. There's no gay gene, and there's none of these things. This is just, this is outrageous when you read good scientists from Yale and Harvard and people who are writing the major books, and they write about all of this stuff, and they, they tell you the fanatics. Like there's a guy in Sudbury where you buy a football hat, for Pete's sake, and he's got it all rigged up so that you can have an experience of God with the electrons and electrodes and the, the, the electrical jolt that this thing gives you for about $35. I find that hard to take seriously. And people who talk about these belief genes and whatever, even, by the way, even if that were true, that there's something in us physiologically, there's a naturalistic, there's something in us, in our brain, which promotes religious belief. That still doesn't affect the argument for God. That simply tells us that's how God communicates to us. Communicates through what God's created, through the physical world. That's what we believe about God anyway. God uses secondary causes, natural causes, and God can use supernatural devices. God, God's not limited like that. So I'm saying there, there is a strong argument for mysticism, religious experience that, that uh, is not given a fair hearing. Most books, by the way, taught by philosophers on philosophy of religion, which is what I do mostly, when you talk about these arguments for God's existence, most books don't even have chapters on the argument for religious experience. And if they do, they're always condescending. But they don't look at them like a theologian does. They, they assume naturalistic causes for all this stuff, and they miss the point that the argument for God based on religious experience is that God, it's like the moral argument, that God is the only possible source that makes any sense for that experience. It's not quite as silly as it may look, but again, that's for another time and place. Thank you for listening. We invite you to join us for the next episode as the journey of justifying beliefs continues.